Today we are continuing our journey uh, through this, the book of the Gospel of John. We're calling it The Reveal. Looking at the different characters that we see in the story of the book of John. And, and looking specifically at how God reveals himself, his character, through the person of Jesus to these different characters in the story. These different characters that we see. And specifically how they then respond to that revelation of God. And take it on their own. These are all kind of cool stories and powerful interactions and powerful conversations and amazing miracles. But the author isn't just telling us stories about the great conversations and the cool tricks that Jesus did. Each of these accounts is meant to be a picture of the character of God. How Jesus wants us to understand who God is and how we can interact with God And most of these stories involve Jesus taking people's common beliefs about religion and turning them kind of on their heads. Many of these stories, as we look back, have involved sort of religious purification rites. Or or they've taken place on holy days or during holy uh, festivals. and, And a lot of them take place in Jerusalem. A lot of what Jesus is doing, he's doing specifically in the context of their faith. But he's taking those things and turning them on their head. Last week, Chris, for instance, talked about the blind man who was healed back in chapter 9 during the Festival of Tabernacles by the Pool of Siloam. And this Pool of Siloam had water that the Jews and many others believed had magical healing powers. And so the religious leaders had literally taken and started bottling this water and selling it, kind of as religious merch, uh, at and around these festivals. And Jesus went to the blind man and and he literally took that same water and used it to give the blind man sight. And not only is that a great miracle and a great story, but his point is to say, it's not about the water. It's about me. And it's not even about physical blindness as much as it's about the blindness that all of us have spiritually. Jesus turned it on its head. Throughout the whole book, Jesus takes the things that people thought they knew about God. And he says, those are just symbols. Those are just representations. Those are a a shadow. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the true good shepherd. I am the light. And throughout the whole book, Jesus reveals who God is. And many people follow, and even more don't follow. Today we're looking at the very last of the signs that Jesus performed in this section of the Gospels. And all of the other signs, all the other miracles have kind of led up to this point of the story. This is sort of Jesus' grand finale in the book of John. When it comes from John chapter 11, I want to invite you to turn there with me. And as you do, I want to let you know that we do have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible at home, we would absolutely love for you to take one home as a gift. We have them at the doors. We'd love for you to take them. So this story comes from the, the chapter, uh, chapter 11 of the book, but I want to go back just a couple of chapters and set a little context here. Back in chapter 8, Jesus claimed to be God, and in response, the people tried to stone him and arrest him. Then in chapter 9, Jesus gives sight to this blind man, and in response, people try to stone him and arrest him. And then in chapter 10, it ends with people trying to stone him and arrest him. Things aren't going all that well for the movement. At this point, right? Everywhere Jesus goes, in and around Jerusalem, there are people who, in response to his claims, in response to his miracles, in response to these conversations, try to kill him or to arrest him. And that's the context in which chapter 11 starts. Jesus has escaped away from Jerusalem. He's gone out across the Jordan River and is now out in the wilderness, sort of in hiding, uh, which sounds weird to say about God, but Jesus is in hiding out in the wilderness to escape these people. John chapter 11, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his hair 
uh, wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. Let's pause there just for a second. Some interesting notes. It says, Jesus' dear friend, Lazarus, lives with his two sisters in a town called Bethany. And there's a lot in there. First of all, it, it's in uh, this town called Bethany. And Bethany is right in the very heart of the hotspot for Jesus. Bethany is just outside the walls of Jerusalem. It's a suburb of Jerusalem. And so it is exactly where Jesus has experienced all of this danger. And I think it's interesting to note that it says that Lazarus lives with his sisters. I think that's an interesting side note in that it lists no spouses for any of them. It's not Lazarus and his wife. It's not Mary and her husband, Martha. It lists no spouses. These were single people. In fact, two single women, sisters who lived with their single brother who was about to die. In a culture where single women had very little power, very little status, all of this property, his home, everything they owned was probably legally his. And so they're, they're looking at this and their brother who's about to die for them could have horrible consequences. Suddenly they would be homeless. They would have no property of their own. And so the sisters send a message to Jesus, even though he's in hiding. Apparently they're close enough friends to Jesus to know where his hiding spot is. And they send a message to him basically saying, Jesus, our brother, who is your dear friend, who you love, is ill. We need you to come and to heal him. We need you to do for him what we've seen you do over the weeks and months and years for so many other people. And think about that. That's a bold ask. That's a big ask. They would have known as his friends exactly how much danger they were asking him to come back into. The risk they were putting him in to ask him to come back to the area of Jerusalem. And yet they ask because they're desperate. And Jesus does come, but not right away. Next verse. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. First of all, it doesn't say who he said that to. You know, he may have said it to the messenger to bring that message back to Mary and Martha. He may have said it to his disciples. He may have simply said it out loud, but it doesn't really matter. I think either way. It's kind of a strange statement, right? This sickness is for God's glory so that God's son, that's me, by the way, may receive glory. It's similar to the statement of Jesus that we looked at last week in regard to the blind man in chapter 9. Jesus' disciples asked if this man had been born blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin, to which Jesus replied, neither this man nor his parents have sinned, said Jesus, but this happens so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Chris, last week in his talk, shared how much struggle he's had with that verse over the years. Because it really sounds like God made this man sick his entire life so that Jesus could have a good object lesson in one sermon. That's horrible, right? If that's right, that, that's horrible. And here in chapter 11, Jesus' response sounds a little bit like that. Don't worry about your brother. I'm going to get glory. And if they heard that message, I got to think at least part of them kind of said, well, that's great. But what about our brother? That's the pressing issue for us in this moment. But then it gets even more confusing. Verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Huh? I mean, you'd expect him to read, Jesus loved Martha and Mary so much that he immediately dropped everything he was doing and hurried to Jerusalem to do everything that he could in his power to save him. 
But it doesn't. It says he loved them so much. So he stayed where he was for two more days. The message translation puts it this way. And I just love it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But oddly, (laughs) when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed. That's weird. I mean, even the message says that's odd. That's not what we would expect. What's going on here? The author is intentionally pointing us to the fact that Jesus loved these people so he stayed. Therefore, because of his love, he stayed. But that doesn't feel like love to us, right? It wouldn't have felt like love to Mary and Martha. It wouldn't have looked like love to Jesus' disciples. So let's dig into what's happening. So it says, after a couple of days, Jesus said, okay, now let's go back to Judea. And his disciples, knowing exactly where that is, said, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there. Remember, I mean, this is, this is exactly the heart of where this, they've run into those troubles. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. <laughs> Again, I'm sure the disciples were like, yeah, it was more of a yes or no question. <laughs> like, is this really a good idea uh, to head back there? And Jesus gives them what appears to be something of a riddle. It's cryptic, right? But it shouldn't have been. I mean, the truth is Jesus was using the same language throughout all of his teaching. This idea of light and darkness, that he is the light of the world. And so he's answering them, but they don't. They don't get it. N.T. Wright, in the commentary that we've been recommending throughout this whole series, uh, John for Everyone, explains it like this. He says, Jesus seems to have meant that the only way to know where you're going was to follow him. If you try to steer your own course by your own understanding, you'll trip up because you'll be in the dark. But if you stick close to him and see the situation from his point of view, then, even if it means days and perhaps years of puzzlement, wondering why nothing seems to be happening, You'll come out of the right place in the end. I think Jesus is saying to them, yeah, you know what? Our circumstances look bad. We're out in the wilderness hiding right now from all of those people. These circumstances look bad. But if you'll trust me, don't let those circumstances guide you. And instead, let me guide you. And if we're doing the Father's will, then I am the light. And if you follow me, I will light your path. Jesus is saying, take your bearings from me. Not from your circumstances. I think that's the key lesson or all key lesson in this for them, but also for us. There's a place to write this in your notes. As followers of Christ, we must take our bearing from Christ, not from our circumstances. Our circumstances will deceive us every time. Let's continue. Verse 11, it says, after he'd said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Which is funny on a number of levels. I mean, it doesn't make sense. And uh, this, this idea of using falling asleep as a, as a metaphor for death would have been very common in the ancient uh, world. In fact, it would have been common in Jewish thought. It was a euphemism they used, something like we say, passed away. So they should have gotten kind of what his meaning is on this. And if they don't, but even there, I mean, you think, so they thought he was literally falling asleep. Did they really think that Jesus was going to travel days back to the most dangerous place in the world to simply rouse a sleeping friend? It's a strange response on their part. And so Jesus clarifies. And the author doesn't actually say that he rolled his eyes, but I wonder if maybe. 
So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. And again, like phrase after phrase, this is the very next verse. And this sounds so harsh to our ears. He's our friend, our dear friend, and he's dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there. Right? And what's perhaps even stranger is the why that he gives. He says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Think about his audience. Who is he even talking to? These are his disciples. He's preaching to the choir, right? They are out in the wilderness in hiding. They have left their careers. They have left their families. They have left everything they know to follow Jesus. They have risked death and starvation and being social outcasts for Jesus. He's preaching to the choir. What does he mean so that they believe? I think, again, there's meat here if we lean into it. I think a lot of times when there's these weird things that don't make sense, if you dig into them and go, what's going on there? The truth of who God is is revealed. Jesus knows that they know that he could have healed Lazarus from afar. They'd seen him do it back in chapter 4 when he healed the, the royal official's son from a distance. They saw that. They know that he could have done that. He knows that they know that. Jesus knows that, that they know that he could have made it there in time. But Jesus also knows that something even more helpful for their faith, even more helpful for their sake, is going to happen if he waits. Jesus knew that there was still so much for them to experience. The statement wasn't for his sake, so that they could somehow prove to him that they believed. It was for their sake, so that they could truly experience, fully experience the power and the glory of God firsthand, and in experiencing it, believe on a whole new level so that their faith might be deepened and strengthened and stretched. Let's continue reading. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. This is Thomas, also known as Didymus, also known as doubting Thomas, right? But I think maybe Thomas gets a bum rap and he's kind of forever known as doubting Thomas. But I love this guy. I mean, he doesn't totally get it, but he's like, all right, I don't get it, but I'm in. Let's go get ourselves killed. (laughs) Right? His understanding is imperfect. His faith is imperfect. But his stance, his response to God, his stance towards Jesus is right on. I don't get it, but I'm in. He's not following Jesus because he knows how it all fits together. Clearly, he doesn't. He just follows. And for that, I think he deserves some credit, which is why I'm starting a campaign that from now on he will be known as Let's Go Get Ourselves Killed, Thomas. (laughs) It sounds way cooler than Doubting Thomas. Why is it that we're only known for our mistakes? Let's keep going. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, so he's reminding us of that. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed home. Note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say when he got there, Lazarus had already been dead four days. It says he had already been in the tomb four days. And that probably doesn't sound all that significantly different to us in our culture now. But it would have been different for them. You see, back in this day, people, the dead, would have been buried immediately. The day of their death, they would have been put in a tomb. 
And the mourners would come out and, and they would grieve for three days because they believed that the spirit of the dead, the, the spirit of the person who had died, would remain with the body. In fact, trying to, to return to the body for those three days. Until after the third day, the body was so unrecognizable because of the decay and the decomposition that the, the spirit would abandon the body and leave. And so the wailing, the mourning, the grieving was at its very height on the third day because they knew that that was their last chance to express their grief while the spirit of the person was still in the tomb. So possibly what the author wants us to know by saying he'd been in the tomb four days was that Lazarus is fully dead. There's no doubt about it. This isn't, what's about to happen is not going to be a resuscitation. This isn't a trick. Lazarus' spirit is gone, and his body has already begun to decay beyond recognition by their standards, by their expectations. So it's that, but I think we should also note, like I said, that he reminds us that this is all taking place in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem, the most dangerous place in the world for Jesus and his followers. In fact, there's a very good chance that among the many Jews that came out to mourn, were probably some of the very same people who had just a couple of chapters earlier, just a couple of days earlier, perhaps, been trying to kill Jesus and arrest Jesus. Next verse. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I think it's easy to hear, you know, complaint, to hear bitterness, to hear hurt. In what she's saying. And certainly there's probably some of that. And yet there's also a tremendous amount of faith. That she's expressing. I love that phrase that demonstrates her faith. Even now. Even now. When you didn't come when I asked. Even now when you didn't heal him. Even though I know that you love him. And that you could have healed him. Even now when the whole world just stopped making sense for me. Even now when I don't know if I'm going to lose my house and everything that I have. Even now when I'm in the midst of grief and pain. Even now I know. That's, that's remarkable faith. Oh to have that kind of faith. Clearly, Martha is taking her bearings from Christ, not from her circumstances. And just like Thomas, she doesn't do it perfectly, but her faith is genuine. Her posture toward God of leaning in to God is right on. Next verse, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jews at that time and still today, believe that at the end of time, on the last day, that the, the dead will rise, will be resurrected to God. The, the Jews who believed will be resurrected to God. And that's what Martha is referencing. And it's, it's a kind of flat response because honestly, that's a, that phrase is something she would have heard many times over the last several days. It was a very common comforting thing that Jews said to one another. Your brother will rise. Your sister will rise. It's a lot like we say, um, you know, they're in a better place. Or at least there's no more pain. There's no more suffering. It was, it was sort of a religious, I would say Christianese, but Jewishese that they said to each other. It was a familiar phrase. But then Jesus takes that phrase and gives us a whole new context. He turns it on his head. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
Just like throughout the whole book of John where Jesus is taking these, these common religious beliefs and these common religious practices and sayings. And he's turned them around and given them new meaning. saying, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. Here he's saying, yes. And that resurrection of the dead that you believe in and that you hope in and that you're finding comfort in right now and that others are sharing comfort with you in. I am that resurrection. I am that life. I don't just have access to it through God. I am it. I don't just give life. I am life. That hope that you have is a future hope of a one day, the last day. But in real and tangible ways, I am bringing that future hope into your present. And then Jesus gives her the opportunity to respond to Professor Faith. He says, do you believe this? And her response is interesting. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. And again, if I'm Jesus, I would be like, that's actually the question I asked. That's more life and resurrection. But he doesn't correct her, even though her response makes it clear that she doesn't totally understand. Her faith response is genuine. And she's confessing as much as she knows, as much as she understands. She's professing and confessing to Jesus and following. And I think that's what faith is about. I think in this, she is giving us, the, uh, the author of John is giving us, Jesus is giving us a model of what faith looks like. She is the hero in the story because of her faith. And Jesus' response to her imperfect yet genuine faith reveals a whole lot about who he is too. How he wants us to interact with him. I think from this, we can take that we don't have to totally get it. We don't have to understand every detail. We don't have to do it perfectly. What Jesus wants is followers who trust him, who follow him, who say, I don't get it, but I'm in. I don't understand it all, but I'll trust and I'll lean into you. Well, Martha leaves and runs home and tells Mary that Jesus has come. And they, they leave together to go back to where Jesus is. And when the other mourners see that Mary and Martha are leaving, they assume they're going back to the grave. And so they join them and they go back thinking that they're going to mourn more, even though it's now day four. Verse 32, and Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews would come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. There's that phrase that we've seen throughout this whole book. Come and see. It's just a common refrain that runs through the whole book. But this time it means something a little bit different. It means, Jesus, come and see this place of pain. This place of hurting. This place where hope seems to be lost. Let us take you to that place. It's remarkable how many times it pops up in John and the different ways that it's used to invite us to experience God. Note that it also says that when Jesus saw Mary and the Jews who had come with her and he saw that they were weeping, it says he was deeply moved and troubled. It says, verse 35, Jesus wept. I think that's another revelation about the character of God, about who God is. It's the, shortest book, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, and yet it communicates so much about God. It says that God is a God who weeps. But it's also strange. I mean, in this context, why is Jesus weeping? I mean, is it because he's sad that his friend has died and that his friend is gone? 
I mean, Jesus knows the end of the story. Jesus knows that in just a matter of moments, he is going to resurrect. He's going to give life back to Lazarus. So clearly he's not grieving that sort of loss. So what is it? I think Jesus is grieving death itself. I think he's grieving the fact that his friends have to experience this sort of pain, these moments of pain. I think there's a, <clears throat> this shows us the nature of, of God, the character of God. He is not distant. He is not unfamiliar. He is a, a one who is familiar with our pains and sorrows. There's a place to write this in your notes. Jesus weeps to reveal that God weeps with those who weep and mourns with those who mourn. If that sounds familiar, it's because we are called to do that same thing as followers of Christ, but God models it for us. God in this demonstrates to us that he is there, he is present, and he feels our pain. He feels our grief. Jesus wept out of anger that death had such a stronghold over the people that he loved, the people that he had created. Here is the author of life, the creator of life, watching his closest friends experience this profound pain and loss. And it grieved him. It angered him. Not at them, but at death itself. This was not the way the creator wanted it. The IVP commentary says this, and I just absolutely love it. He, meaning Jesus, is angry at death and saddened at grief. In both cases, the reason is the same, namely his love for his friends, the love of God for us, and his wrath toward that which corrupts and destroys us are two sides of a single coin. I think that's true of this passage, but it's true of so much. God loves us so much that anything that corrupts and destroys us, that is the wrath. God feels a wrath, an anger, a sadness that we would experience that. And in this chapter where life is such a central theme, where Jesus said, I am the life. No one who believes in me will die. In a chapter where, where life is so central, clearly death is the great enemy. Next verse. Then the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? They're referencing the healing we talked about last week. And oftentimes we hear that statement, that phrase, portrayed as a cynicism or, or even that they're mocking him. Like, oh, so you couldn't do this, right? And it's possible. I mean, that may be true, but it also is possible that it's more than that. I mean, these are very possibly the same people who had seen him do the miracle. They're referencing the story that they saw Jesus give this man sight. And, and for them, we forget because it's a familiar story that that would have been absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, a person who was born blind and was blind all their life receiving sight would be major medical news today. That would be international news. Even with all of our medical advances and all our scientific knowledge, that would be huge news. But in this context, there was no context for that. They had no way of even understanding that only a God could do that. And so they may be genuinely asking, what are the limits to this man's power? We know that he's more powerful than blindness. We know that he's more powerful than a man who is lame. We know that he's more powerful than sickness. But it sure looks like death is stronger than him. Theirs might be a genuine seeking, a curiosity. And if it's true, then what happens next is all the more profound. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha... The sister of the dead man. By this time, there's a bad odor, for he's been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus 
could have healed Lazarus from a distance, as he had in previous stories. And had he done that, then certainly Mary and Martha and Lazarus would have experienced that glory of God on some level. But it would have been limited to them. And and others who even heard the story might say, well, maybe he wasn't all that sick. Or maybe it's a coincidence. Or maybe Jesus could have made it on time. And And then Mary and Martha and Lazarus and his disciples would have experienced the glory of God, perhaps. And maybe a few others would be present. But by waiting, but by following the leading of his father, by allowing the father's timeline to play out, now Mary and Martha and Jesus' disciples would see the glory of God. It's what Jesus was saying earlier when he said, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But it's not just for Mary and Martha and his disciples. This is for the whole town. This is for the crowd of mourners who have come. This is even for those who perhaps have tried to harm Jesus. All of them got to see the glory of God, the revelation of God's heart. Next verse. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Did you catch that? He did all of this. He waited the two days. He made the journey back into danger. And he prayed these prayers, these words, so that everyone would see the glory of God revealed. He said these words so that they would see God as Father. God is a father who hears and answers prayer. He said this so that all would believe. He'd waited for this moment so that all of them would experience the glory of God for their sake, for their benefit, not his. He's not trying to impress them. He wants them to come and see God, to experience firsthand the glory of God. And let's just pause there for a second. I mean, throughout this whole book, there's this phrase, the glory of God, that, that Jesus is referred to. Uh, you know, where it refers to God's glory being revealed, or so that the Son will receive glory. And like all of those phrases have the potential, at least, to sound to us like God is this self-absorbed, narcissistic being who just is willing to subject us to pain and suffering so that he might get glory. Right? That's what we talked about last week. That's what we talked about this week. But I think... In this verse, and if you look back through, I think through all of these stories, there's a refrain that runs through all of them of the glory of God. And what I think they're saying is, when we see God's glory, when we experience God's glory on this earth, as it is in heaven, it's our good. It's for our good. There's a place to write this down, you know, God's glory is our good. That's what Jesus is saying. When we experience God's glory on earth as it is in heaven, when we see that we experience that, things happen like blind men get sight. Lame men walk. When God's glory is revealed and when we experience it, dead men live. God is good. God's glory is good. And when we see it, when we experience it, it is good. Verse 43 When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. I think that last phrase is Jesus' victory cry. Like, I win, death loses, mic drop. (laughs) This is him saying, I have defeated death and death no longer has any victory, any power, any hold on him. Free him from even those claws that bind him. To demonstrate how complete my victory is. 
And yet we know that it's not complete. We know that Lazarus did eventually die again. We know that Mary and Martha and the disciples all died. We know that in this world there is still death and disease and pain that we walk through and that we experience. But Jesus in this moment... In this story, knows that in a matter of days, he'll be giving them a much more complete picture of what his power over death looks like. A more complete picture of what that last day, when the dead are raised, what that is going to look like. That they'll be given bodies that are incorruptible, that will never die, that will never experience disease again. A more complete picture of our future hope. And just like everywhere else in John, Some saw that picture and believed, and many others didn't. Verse 45, next verse. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Some of them, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It says many believed, but some. It's hard to even believe that, that these people had seen Jesus do unthinkable things. They had seen him do these miracles and have these amazing conversations and do all these, feed 5,000 people and walk on water. They'd seen the lame walk and the blind receive sight, the dead raised, and it wasn't enough. While Martha had said, even now in these circumstances, when there is no hope, I know. But these people say, even now, In the face of all of this evidence, I choose not. I think that's a picture for us today. I think that's a revelation of who God is and how he works and the fact that he's given us this free will. That we can choose him or not. We can lean into him or not. It's a choice we have today. It's a choice we have every day. All of us at some level know what it's like to be Martha. To know what it's like to have those four days of waiting, of crying out to God saying, I need your help. I need your rescue. I need to know, I need to see you do for me what you've done for so many before. And to have God remain silent, God to feel distant and unengaged and uninterested in our pain. Will we, in those circumstances, walk in the light, stay in the light, follow Jesus, knowing that our only shot of making it through is to stay close to him. Will we, in those moments, take our bearings from Christ and not from our circumstances? All of the evidence in Mary and Martha's life said that death had won. They had no reason to believe that there was hope based on any circumstance in their life. But Martha chose to look instead to Jesus. Not perfectly, still tearfully and full of pain and questions and doubt and even maybe a little bit of anger. But she chose to lean in. Will we? Will we say to Jesus, come and see all of the areas of my life, the brokenness and the pain and the places where there is death and disease and brokenness? Will we invite Jesus into those places and ask him to move and work and heal in those places? Will we say, even now, when I don't have the job that I need, when my relationship with my spouse is fractured, When I watch sickness consuming someone that I love. Will we even then say, even now I know God that you are good. And that you have good plans for me. And that your glory is good. 
Will we believe that God is present, that God is our Father, a Father who hears and cares and weeps with us in the midst of our circumstances? Will we, in the midst of our circumstances, say, God, I believe, I know. Because Jesus says that if we do, we will, in ways that we can't totally understand, experience the glory of God. We will see the glory of God. And in ways that are surprising that we can't anticipate, we will experience that glory of God making us new, bringing new life to our brokenness. If we do, we will experience now, at least in part, that glorious future that God has for us in our present. A glorious future that, when all is done, will be made complete. This is how the story of this section of the Gospel of John ends. This is how the story of Lazarus ends. But as you know, this is not how all of the story ends. The greater narrative ends. Over the next couple of weeks, as Chris said, we're going to continue this journey of following Jesus through the book of John. And we'll see kind of the conclusion of at least the first part of the story of Jesus. We'll see Jesus go into the heart of Jerusalem, that place that was most dangerous for him. Because Jesus knew that when he accepted this invitation to come, to bring life to Lazarus, he was setting in motion the very events that would bring about his suffering and his death. That he would enter into the death that awaits us all. But he also knew that he would emerge through it. And he would reveal to us a life like had never been seen. I want to invite you to come back over these next three weeks or the next two weeks as we experience that, as we continue to explore how God is revealed into that. I want to invite you to come and see. And as Chris asked earlier, I want to, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider who you might invite to come and see this Jesus, to see this new life. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you uh, that you've given us your word. God, we thank you that in your word you reveal your character. God, we thank you that in these stories we see that you are present, that you do hear us, that you care. That you are a man acquainted with grief. And that you know our sorrow. God, help us to bring all of ourselves before you. The pain, the hurt, all of it. And even though we bring it imperfectly, even though we bring it tearfully and with questions and doubts and maybe even anger, God, we praise you that you are good and that we can trust you to be good. Help us to live into that. We ask in the name of Jesus.